You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jurgen Klopp and you're listening to the big interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jurgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. You will also get bonus content every month, including the audio versions of my regular columns for ESPN. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. to somebody of my generation, it feels astonishing that not all of you will remember that there was a country called Yugoslavia. Not all of you will remember that Denmark won the Euros in 1992 or how that came about. So, this is what the big interview's for, I think. This episode is with the crown prince of that triumph, one of the great, elegant, technically gifted, thrilling footballers of our generation, Brian Loudrop. Brian joins us to give a forensic breakdown of how Denmark won those Euros in what is one of the two great all-time underdog international tournament win stories. The success actually was born in the club called Bronby, Brondu, the Danes call it, I think, years previously, where an incredible coming together of talent, including Brian Loudrop, Peter Schmeichel, amongst many others, laid foundations for what was to happen with the national team in 1992. This tale has everything. A real clash of football beliefs and personal animus, which resulted in both Brian Loudrop and Michael Loudrop quitting the Danish team, managed by Richard Muller-Nielsen, the same man who would eventually bring glory to Denmark, before Brian decided to return before the tournament, not because he sniffed glory, for completely different reasons, and then suddenly the opportunity to play in the Euros in Sweden was thrust upon him. He tells us everything about that, the stress. He looks each way and talks about some of the key members of the team, including Schmeichel. He explains to us why he and his brother quit 
why they left Richard Muller Nielsen to his devices as coach of Denmark and how it was that Muller Nielsen came to persuade Brian to rejoin. The 11th hour inclusion of the Danes in the tournament at the exclusion of the aforementioned Yugoslavia who were disqualified after war broke out in the Balkans didn't immediately look as if it would be a fairy tale story for the Danes. However, this goes on to be a tale of epic proportions featuring players like Effenberg, Klinsmann, Jean-Pierre Papin, Eric Cantona. Can the Danes really do it? Enjoy part one. Stay tuned for part two tomorrow and we'll break down the tournament game by game. It's a truly great story. Enjoy. Big interview listeners. Um, We've got a a bit of a privilege today. Um, We are talking to the hero the best player of one of the greatest international tournaments ever. And I'll, and I'll let you know, listeners, there have been 36 European Championship and World Cup tournaments combined. And in my opinion, there only has ever been really two great underdog stories. And how appropriate it is just in the day that we're talking to be saying, Viva the underdog, and let's not be ruled by, by the, the big money people all the time. Those stories are Greece and Denmark winning the European Championship. And I'd argue that the Greece thing is is wonderful for the people of that country, but they weren't an inspirational side. They were, in fact, pretty dull. Leaving one underdog story in the entire history of the World Cup and the European Championship, which is Denmark in 92. And we have the best player of that tournament. We have the one of the men of the, the team of the tournament. We have the inspiration for the men in red and white, Mr. Brian Loudrop. Uh, good morning. I guess you recognise the description that I'm giving there because you did it. We absolutely did it. I mean, it's um, it's strange to sit here and talk about something which happened, you know, 29 years ago. I mean, the time flies, as, as you know, and uh, but it's it comes to my mind, you know, the. Uh, the, the sensation, you know, the uh, the feelings we, we had as, as players, you know, going to a tournament thinking about, okay, can we just, if we get one point, that will be a huge success. We don't want to be slaughtered. We don't want to just be criticized. We don't want to make up the numbers, but we have to sell ourselves as, as well as we can and then ending up winning it. I mean, it was absolutely crazy stuff and to this day I think it's changed a lot of the players lives really. Can I take you back because we we want to make this a really forensic examination of the tournament we we like people to to feel like they were there and to understand it please feel free to tell me I'm wrong when I put forward ideas but we've worked on this and I was lucky enough to have enjoyed it I wasn't full-time journalism at the time but I was I was really rooting for Denmark you were an exciting side there are other reasons I was rooting for you, but I, I want to start by, by going back to what I call the Brombu Bunch, because, again, if I'm right, number one, there had only been really a clutch of years since Brombu had become the first full-time professional club in your country. And secondly, although we have to look at the, the team once you'd left Brombu that got to the um, the Champions League, the European Cup semi-final, 
my eye is, is nonetheless taken to the, the Porto game. In, in, in Pardon me, the Roma game was in UEFA Cup when she left. But the, the Porto game, the quarterfinals of the European Cup. And if I look at that, that side, I think there are six that started against Porto in a, in a massively tight tie against the side that went on to win the European Cup that, that season. So you, you very nearly created a miracle before the miracle. And to, to carry that group, plus others, who go on to eventually play Germany, how much in professionalism, in culture, in the conglomeration of great players, in the European experience, experience against Porto, did Brombu look like a tributary, a beginning for what happened in '92? I think it was a huge train that got moving when Brenby back in, I think it was 85 or was it 86, became uh, full-time professionals. It was something which had never, you know, seen the light of the day in Denmark. You know, we were amateurs and, um, you know, happy, you know, good old-time amateurs. And if you wanted to play professionally, you had to go abroad, obviously. Um, So... This team that was created was, and we didn't know that we were going to create a fantastic team back then. But, you know, if you look at the team and I can, you know, mention, give you names like Peter Smichael, uh, like, um, you know, John Jensen, um, Kim Vilford, you know, a lot of, you know, players that, you know, five perhaps five or six years on, uh, would play uh, in, in the Euro 92. So obviously we were a team that played together for a number of years. And I think that was one of the reasons behind the success, really. Uh, I think we, um, you know, we, uh, it's, it's strange, really, because from one day to another, we were like, you know, a team that used to uh, train perhaps three, perhaps four times a, a week. And all of a sudden, we were full-time professionals, you know, training twice twice a day and living, you know, the uh, the professional football life, and that changed, I think, the mentality in Denmark, because I think we we went from, as I say again, you know, being you know people that you know love to play football after work, you know, and and not being professionals really, to start perform like that and live like professionals. And I think, as I say again, you know, it, it changed the whole the whole idea of football in Denmark and um, and to this day um, changed uh, perhaps the perception of Denmark as a footballing country as well. Brian, if, if, you, if you take what you've been describing there about the, the change from a slightly happy-go-lucky, talent-based mentality when you're amateurs to the full professional... Uh, life, the impact of that, there hasn't been long for it to have an impact. If, if Brumbo goes professional in about 86, the Porto tie is in 87. Can I put forward then that given that you, you run the eventual European Cup winners very, very close, the group of Schmeichel, Bjarne Jensen, Ole Ostergaard, Lars Olsen, Kent Nielsen, Ole Madsen, Kim Vilfort, Peter Stephenson, Henrik Jensen, John Jensen, Klaus Nielsen, Tommy Christensen, yourself, coached by the late Ebby Skovdal, um, much loved in Aberdeen. D- does that say that there must have been a hell of a lot of talent and character because you, you didn't run Porto so close based on all the years of build-up of professionalism? You, 12 months doesn't make a massive difference. That must have been one hell of a group. That was one hell of a group. It was, uh, I mean, for me personally, 
you know, stepping into that group at the age of 17 hours, uh, it was a nightmare, I tell you. I mean, can you imagine your seasoned pros and, and here comes Brian, you know, Michael's little brother. Can he do anything at all? Is he, is he a player? So I had to... Uh, I had, I mean, I had some stick to, you know, and, and, you know, I had to prove that, you know, I, I could, I could play a wee bit, you know, so, but having said that, and, and uh, you're completely right, it was a fantastic bunch of players because we, I think we came together at the right time. There was, you know, a lot of players with, uh, you know, great experience, even back then, not being professionals, but having played, you know, the game for for a number of years, and then all the professionals, uh, well, all the, these talents brought from from various places. Peter Smichael came from from a small uh, club in the area um, to um, to all the other players, you know, gathered at Brunby, and and I think. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, we ran Porto very close. Uh, I'm not saying uh, I was I was the finished article back then, but I remember you know playing a few minutes in both games and and Paulo Futra. You know he was the big Porto player. I loved him. Uh, what a player he was. And um, but you know we, there is a, there's something about Denmark, and and I think Scotland has got the same you know this underdog feeling. That um, you know, when you go out against the, the, the big guns, uh, we always seem to produce the goods. And I'm not saying that we we didn't beat Porto over the, the two legs, but we we came very close, as you say. And and I think that made Brunby and Danish football realize that hey, five, ten years, fifteen years from now, we can compete against the big boys in in European football. And uh, being part of that was absolutely incredible. Can, can I share something that I sat down with Peter Schmeichel in 2014, just before the making of the film of this brilliant tournament that you won. And I asked him, and, and, I, and I want to quote him to, to try and get you to explain if anything similar at all happened to you. He talks about the game in Dasantas in Porto. And he says specifically, that was by a long, long stretch the biggest game I would ever play. That day was my biggest day. Most people I had ever played in front of, about 80,000. And he says, Brian, I remember how scared I was. Because we sat in the coach on the way to DeSantis with a full police escort. I've never seen anything like it before. Basically, it was just a normal road, not a dual carriageway. And they were taking us down the middle of the road. Cars had to fly out of our way. That really scared me. He says, really, really scared me. But so did the game. Peter said, all I could think about was, I really hope we don't get there. I hope the bus will turn around or it'll break down and we'll go somewhere else. Honestly, I couldn't face playing the game. I was very nervous and physically I was shaking and sweating. He then goes on to say that he talks to himself in the stadium. He says, Peter, this is crazy. This is what you worked for all your life. And he says that he, he, he took the nerves, talked himself out of them and never felt nervous again. Now, I expect it wasn't identical for you, but that is, is a life-changing, not a career-changing moment. That's extraordinary. Does it ring any bells with you? I, I, I think it's extraordinary coming from Peter Michael, to be honest with you. But um, but that shows you that you know we were we were young, we were very inexperienced, you know, at that level. Um, sometimes it can be very daunting and very scary, perhaps to uh, 
at a very young age to all of a sudden, you know, play in the European Cup, play the a big team like Porto. We we have been seeing Porto. Porto back then was like perhaps well, not comparable, but it's for us at least it was like perhaps watching Real Madrid or, you know, Barcelona and nowadays. Uh, so for us it was it was all about not um how can you say it? Um try and 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 and, and perform as well as we could, but knowing that we were immensely i mean we were underdogs in, in, in a big big way yeah. and just trying to um um yeah <laughs> trying to perform at, at, at that level but i think as, as peter michael mentioned it and i think i was even younger than he was for me it was uh, I, I came on i think in, in the second half i played perhaps as i recall it 10 15 minutes you know i remember Ebus Caldwell, who was who was my uncle he told me just before I went on the pitch, he says, Brian, get the ball, do something, take people on. And I was like, yeah, what are you talking about? You know, I was I was 17 or 18. But but again, you know, I, I think it was a, an eye opener, really. And I think it's it's one of these experiences that, that you, you have to get through. And then after the game, you realize how lucky you've been, you know, to play at that level, to, to actually you know, um, running very, you know, uh, very close to to a, a huge upset and then realize I want more of this, you know. This was this this was the uh the appetizer, you know, now you want the 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 uh the main course and and I think for for a number of us I left, you know, Brembe two years later, but some of them, you know, stayed on and, and played in the semifinals against you know, Roma and all that. Yeah, I, I I went to Germany uh, back then, but but you know, this team set the standards, which to this day has not been surpassed. You know, it's not been you know FC Copenhagen. They have come close. They've done extremely well in, in European football, but but no Danish team has ever gone as far as Brøndby did, and that's what makes me proud of being part of that. I wonder when your work with Brundu and with Bayer Erdogan culminates in you being handed your first international jersey. You you mentioned your elder brother, but you didn't mention your dad, Finn, who's a Danish footballing legend, a leader, an exceptionally good attacking player. He became a coach, an international footballer who really only wore his last international jersey about 11 years before you win the European Championship, which is pretty extraordinary. When that first call up comes, what do you, you know, what does it do to you? What does it feel like? What is the badge and the colours of the Danish international shirt to mean? The heritage of knowing what your father had been, those that first moment representing your country. And, and do you do you did you keep a souvenir? What's the what's the experience for you? Yeah, the experience was was remarkable. I mean, I mean, being part of the, uh, the of this family. Um, was always very tough for me. I think um, I think it's it's understandable. I think you understand it as well. Having a father being um, back then uh, some sort of an icon, it was a different era, obviously, and not with social media and not you know, as I say again, no professionals in Denmark. Even if you played as a professional abroad, you were not allowed to play for the national team. It was crazy. It was it was completely different to what it is today. So my father, he only. He only played 22 games for Denmark. He, he could have played at least uh, three times as, as much as that. But 
But having said that, he was a, a fantastic footballer, uh, loved in this country, some more than others, but uh, but he was certainly a, a, a wonderful, gifted technical player. And then my brother came along and the uh, uh, rest is history. You know, he was, and quite rightly so, you know, regarded as the best player perhaps ever to come out of this country. And, and, and then, you know, five years later, I joined the scene as well. So at times, I have to say it was very difficult because when I was seven, eight, as a youth player, you know, I couldn't hide anywhere. You know, people would say, oh, there's, uh, you know, Finn's son or Michael's brother. Uh, he's going to be the, the best of them all. Can you imagine that with at the age of seven, eight, nine? So the uh, the expectation level, I think, was at times too much for me. And uh, I, I had difficulties coping with that. Um, but eventually, I, I remember when I was uh, I was 15, I, I stopped playing for, for a while just to find out with myself, is this the path you want to go? Uh, is this the, you know, do you want to be compared all the time? Do you want to uh, um, become known perhaps as the only one in this family and not being a good player, uh, despite perhaps having a talent? But after two weeks, I just decided, listen, I love football. You know, I love to play. And for me, it was all about you know, enjoying myself. It was not about playing for Denmark. It was not about playing abroad, but it was a, about enjoying the game. And I think after the, the two weeks, I decided, okay, let's give it, a, I'll, I'll go all in and see how, how far it takes me. And having by your question about playing for Denmark was the biggest um, dream for me coming true. I mean, my father had played, my brother, I, I I went to uh, to Germany when when Denmark played in, in the Euro '88. It was a poor poor uh, Euros for for Denmark, but you know I was I was standing in the stands, you know, with the Danish fans and and celebrating uh, the Danish team and uh, and trying to to encourage them. So so I've always been a fan myself. And to then back in, I think it was '87. I was called up for the first time. It was actually my brother who uh, was injured. So I came in, in his place. So we didn't actually play together in that game. And I, I didn't even, you know, uh, play in that game. But it was the first time that, you know, I, I, I turned up with these fantastic players like Fred Melchior, you know, Morten Olsen, Soren Levy, Frank Arneson, all these heroes, uh, Jesper Olsen. They were legends. I mean, for me, it was all about, again, you know, trying to... Uh, to um, to do as well and 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 you know suck all in and and hopefully learn a lot of things. So for me, that's the biggest moment I think so far in my career. I was only eighteen when I played my first game. I think it was in Austria, and I was born in Vienna. Uh, my father played in Vienna back then, so it was uh, a curiosity for me to uh, incredibly to to play my first game in Vienna where I was born. A strange feeling in in some ways, but but it made me realize that I want more. As I said, you know, before against the the, the Porto game, when you experience that that feeling of of you know going out in front of your you know with the Danish top on, playing for your country. I think I speak for any football in anywhere in the world. That's the biggest feeling you can ever get. I, I have to ask you about the strange things that happen when Set Piontek who'd been the coach of this 
dazzling Danish team in, in 86, which, again, some people, it'll be a Marmite experience. Do you remember the Uruguay thrashing? Do you remember the way in which they sneakily went past Scotland, which obviously was just a total travesty? Do you, do, do you remember Do you remember the Spain game? And coming forward, 88 isn't fantastic. There's no qualification for 90. And Piontek goes. Now, I think it would be lazy of me to say, I wonder if you had an influence. And it's it's quite late to be investigating a news story. But the choice of coach initially um, is Horst. Um, Horst Wöhlers, who is your coach at Bayer Erdogan. Now, I'm not saying that you called up the, the, the Danish FA and said, listen, lads, I've got it all sorted. But it's a hell of a coincidence. And it also, what happens is quite strange. And it's not Horst who leads you forward to the triumph of 92. In fact, Horst doesn't really make it past a day in the job. Listen, it was, and, I, and I'm perfectly honest here, the Danish FA never, ever called me about Horst Moors. And he obviously never told me anything before you were sitting at a press conference in Copenhagen. Can you imagine that? That's so weird. I, I remember, you know, being in uh, in Erding, um and and on on the day, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bonhoff, who's who was a, a world famous um, uh, German international as well. He played uh, in, in Spain. He was our uh, uh, he he was the assistant. assistant and he yeah. says, uh, Horst, he's not here today, so uh, I'll I'll do the training session. And I was like, what? And the next thing. I hear is that he flew to Denmark and attending, you know, a press conference. What he was not, you know, aware of is that at this press conference, they're actually telling that he's signed a contract and he's the new, you know, uh, the new manager for the Danish national team. So obviously they were not happy about that at, at Bayreuthing and uh, it never came about because they, they didn't accept that. So uh, it was uh, very strange for me. It was uh, it was it was a strange moment for Danish football and and, and, and a humiliating one as well. I think it was not uh, it was not the finest hour of the Danish FA by not having you know secured his uh, his signature, not being aware that he had a, a contract for another two years at Bayern. But uh, it highlighted the um, the fact that um, Richard Muller Nelson, who eventually you know, became the, the manager who was actually um, the assistant uh, of Piontek. Um, he came forward and uh, and got the job. And what, a, you know, what an engagement that was. I mean, for, for him to, well, he was not considered really, I, I think that that's sometimes a problem in Denmark. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know whether that's in, in the football world as, as in general, but being assistant and then turning into the manager can sometimes be quite difficult. And um, and I think especially with the uh, with the eighty six team, eighty eight, you know, eighty four as well. Um, Richard Mullinson, who was seen as perhaps more or less the guy who just you know joins in with the balls and bits and stuff like that. So perhaps the respect was not as big as it should have been. But my God, what he turned this team, this '92 team, into a, a winning machine for for a number of years, and and surprised a lot of people. Before the rest of this big interview, I'd like to tell you that our entire archive of audio and video content is now on our new YouTube channel. 
We've begun filming all of our interviews, and there are already loads of clips with guests, including Rio Ferdinand, Connor Cody, Brendan Rogers, and Jamie Carragher, plus full interviews for you to watch and to share. Please do share with friends. Go to YouTube and search Graham Hunter, or click on the link in the show notes to this episode and become a subscriber. I honestly think you'll enjoy it. Thanks. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The first thing I need to say um, is that Reina Bonhoff says hello because he was our last guest. Oh, fantastic. He was a cracking uh, personality. I really loved him. Let me share a story. Let me share a story. He told us during the interview, he sort of leaned in and said, I'm going to tell you a secret now. And sometimes people mean that, sometimes they don't. He said, when we beat Holland in the 1974 World Cup final, West Germany, he said, until four years earlier, I was Dutch. I said, what? He was Dutch, held a Dutch passport till 1970. His dad was Dutch, and yet he changed sides. So that's a nice little underdog story of its own. That was a great story. Look, Richard Moore Nielsen, you, you, you knew him, I think, because he'd also taken you in some of the, the, the underage teams, the youth teams. And because both you and your brother found it a, a difficult um, appointment initially, what I want to phrase it like, it feels like, Irrespective of how good a coach he was, he was involved in trying to make a transition. He had ideas which flew in the face a little bit of how Denmark generally wanted to play its football, enjoy its football. And transition in life, culture, family, football, isn't always easy. And it it can take a lot of time to digest. When you're facing a brand new style of football, and he seems to stand for quite different values that you and your brother held and, and proper values that had made you both or, or you were on the route to becoming European superstar footballers. Your quality was not in doubt. What was the most difficult thing about it? Was it the results, the Northern Ireland draw, the defeat in Belgrade to Yugoslavia? Was it about what he was asking the team to play like? Why initially did it not gel? It's, I think it's fair to say, and I think I have to take you a little bit back from from his appointment and is that when Sepp Piontek took over it was um, at the back of let's let's put it in, in the right way you know amateur footballers again perhaps a little bit the mentality that even though a lot of these great footballers played abroad and we're talking the likes of you know Alan Simonson Ballon d'Or winner when they came back to Denmark if if you go back to you know start of the 80s it was always like you know when people would say yeah we, we go back we have some good fun we, we meet with all the other you know players and then we go out play a game and that's it then we go back to the clubs abroad again so you didn't have really the feeling that the players believed in that uh, mission to actually 
you know, win something or, or at least go to a Euros or, or qualify for a World Cup. Never happened. They were not even close. And then Sepiontek came in and he turned you know, the world upside down, you know, because he put in a regime that, you know, these players never experienced before, you know, and uh, he wanted success. He wanted um, to, you know, for the Danish players to realize the potential that they haven't fulfilled it, not even closely. So, so what he did, what he changed a lot of things, um, he came with a German mentality, which is very different to, uh, to, to, to our Danish, perhaps laid back approach. And, and, you know, initially um, he was struggling a, a wee bit, but eventually he turned things around and he created, I think, a, a, a personality, a, a mentality, which has, had not been seen in, 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 uh, in Danish football before. And, um, and they qualified for the 84 uh, Euros in, in France. And I think he initiated a, a, a wave, really, uh, a belief, a way of playing, a style of, of football which created football friends throughout the world. And I think that's where at least a lot of people began to look at Denmark and say, this little country, how can they produce so many good footballers? What have they done? What are they doing? And um, and I think, to come back to your question, Piontek, he started it, and Richard Mellon-Nielsen came in, and obviously, uh, and I think our team as well had to live up to all these um, loved players, Prit Melkers, I say, Soren Leibri, Frank Arnesen, you know, they were the heroes of, 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 of the Danish fans. And, you know, we were struggling to, uh, to emulate that because I think we, we were a, a good side, but perhaps didn't have as many good or great footballers as, as they had in, in their era. So for for Richard Moll Nielsen, it was it was he he was a different uh, manager, no doubt about that. He was a cautious manager. He was a, a manager who says, "Okay, we'll start with defense and then we'll build it from there." And it was completely different to what Sipuntic did. So I think it took some time for for Richard Moll Nielsen to actually um, figure out how he could get the best out, out of the likes of my brother Michael, myself. Perhaps even Ian, uh, Jan Mulder, who played very well for Liverpool back then, he was a great, great player. But it, it just seemed to me that he was he was struggling with the idea to have too many, let's say, lazy players in his side. You know, uh, perhaps uh, good footballers, great technique, but perhaps not the, the, the kind of footballers he he um, he loved. And I think that was the biggest question for me that I, I didn't feel his, if I may say, his love initially. I, I felt that he he um, he struggled a little bit to uh, to find a way of, of us to, to play, and and sometimes we even played in, in perhaps in my view uh, some 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 difficult uh, positions we were not used to. And I think eventually, um, you know, speaking to uh, to my brother as well, uh, I, I made the decision to uh, to leave the national team at, at some point. My brother did as well. I have to say that um, for two different reasons. I think for my brother, he was very much involved with Real Madrid. Sorry about with Barcelona back then. Played a completely different style of football uh, at his club, so he didn't feel that he was 
capable of being successful. And I just felt that I was not at you know, the right place at the right time. So um, I, um, I quit the national team and, uh, and I, I do not regret that, to be honest. Uh, I think at, at, at the time I thought it was the right decision to make. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful and I'm really happy about the fact that um, Richard Mill Nielsen, you know, contacted me and said, okay, let's sit down, have a talk. Let's see if we can, you know, remove all these uh, differences and then move on. If that's possible, it would be great. If not, then at least we have made a, uh, uh, we have tried it. I really like that theme. I, I, number one, I've never heard anybody express it, uh, which is not the main thing of why you stopped, but that it could have been perceived by many people, players and, and fans, that Richard Muller Nielsen was tearing down something sacred because what Piontek had built was so glorious, so wonderful. And that idea about building friends around the world is very seductive. Everybody loves to be admired and, and, and people telling you, we love to see you play football. That, that's a nice feeling. To, to leave and, and, and take, a pause, to take a pause, or maybe you thought it was forever, again, that's a grown-up decision because you must follow your principles. You, you must follow your heart. And it strikes me, there's, there's many things in Danish education system to be admired. One of them is, is the, the hour that you get to, to express your opinions as a sub-pupil's hour, and you're taught to have an opinion and, and to follow it. And something that, when we look at sheep around us today, that's my view, you don't have to... I can understand why you might feel enabled to say, no, this isn't for me, I'm going away. But equally in life, how many times do we wish that somebody on the other side of a disagreement or, or a breach reaches out and say, okay, let's talk again, which Muller Nielsen did. And I, and I assume that means, Brian, that he'd reviewed his own actions. He'd reviewed what he'd been doing that made you feel uncomfortable. So it must have been a mutual coming together rather than you just saying... Yeah, okay, listen, I'm tired of not playing, I'm coming back. There was something mutual there. Yeah, definitely something mutual there. Yeah. I remember him uh, coming down to, to Munich. I, I played a Bayern back then. And, you know, we sat down for uh, two, three, even four hours, I think, and discussed everything that's gone in between, you know, and, and in the past. And um, I realized that some of the, perhaps, there were some misunderstandings along the way that uh, uh, by coming down to Munich, sitting down and discussing what we could do from here and move on in a positive fashion, that he was, you know, really um, doing everything in his power to, to try and get the best players back into the fold. And I think by showing that, he showed me that he, he, he wanted me and, uh, and, and wanted to perhaps not build the team because I, I didn't expect to be built around, but he would certainly try and, and, and put in the qualities I had into the team and, and implement that as, as well as possible because I understood completely as he told me that perhaps the team that we had, you know, following in the footsteps of the 84, 86 team, we weren't perhaps as, as prolific. We weren't perhaps as good in terms of, you know, just going out saying we play our own football and, and hopefully that's good enough. We have to, you know, go into some games in a pragmatic fashion. And, and I completely understood that. And uh, that changed my mind, really, and uh, made change my view uh, of him as well as, as, as a human being, as a person, as a manager. And um, I, 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 I told him, you know, a number of times back then that I, 
I really, I was very happy that we had this discussion because it changed my international career, no doubt about that. And, um, and, and this meeting, I have to, to say that, was just three months before the Euro 92, as we are talking around February, March 92, that we are having this discussion. So we didn't know anything about 92 back then, but, but for me, it was a turning point. And I wanted to be part of, of Richard Merle Nielsen's, uh, let's say, ideas going forward, uh, because playing for the national team, as I say again, it, it doesn't come any bigger than that. And um, and we had, uh, you know, we had a, a marvelous team with the backbone from the Burnby uh, era, and uh, I wanted to be part of that and do my bit. And so for me, that was the turning point. And uh, I never looked back. Uh, I moved on from there. And, um, and we had some, some terrific moments together. Tell me about, let's, let's bust some myths, because I think you've done a little bit of that already. But um, again, talking to Peter Schmeichel, he said the myth was that we were all on the beaches. Myths are myths. The reality was we'd finished our seasons. The players who played abroad at the time and those in Denmark were still in their season when we were told. He says you were actually told in, in Brombo, you were training at your old club, the club where it all began when the news comes through, you're actually going to be put in there. And, and he talks about maybe some of the players mentally were on holidays, just a rest, just coming around the corner, thank goodness, because you've been preparing for a friendly against CIS. But he says physically we were in good nick. Mentally and physically, because you you missed a couple of months of Bayern Munich. You'd been playing really well for Bayern Munich in a decent side, in a decent Bayern Munich side. And you'd missed a couple of months, I think with a knee problem during the build-up to that. Mentally and physically, as the news comes through at the training ground in, in your old club, where are you at? I think I, I think I was the ones Michael told you about when he was talking about mentally being on the, <laughs> on the beach. But having said that, you know, it's... It was one of the most strange moments I have ever, you know, tried in my career. I mean, I was just recovering from uh, from a cruciate uh, ligament damage, and I came back and played a few games, as you say, for Bayern Munich uh, in you know April. Was in March, April. I was still struggling a wee bit. I'm a, I was definitely not back to my best, and uh, usually. You know, they always say if you're out for six months, it takes you six months to come back and be as strong. Physically is one thing, but mentally, there's a you know, it's you're always very worried about getting injured again and stuff like that. So, so I was told by Bayern Munich when the season uh, ended in 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 I think it was early May to stay behind for a, a number of of you know. Uh, closed all uh, games and, and just to, to build on my fitness for, for the next season. So um, I came back from from one of these games and and you know got into my house and my wife she she greets me in the hallway and she says uh, I've just been contacted by the Danish FA you have to report tomorrow and I say what I'm not even fit for that you know and she says yeah well, the, you know this thing about unfortunately about the uh, the civil war in in, uh, in Yugoslavia, and they have to, uh, you know, they, they're not allowed to play in the, in the Euros. So, um, so you're going, and uh, you've got eight days to prepare for the game against uh, England. And my my first initial reaction was, I'm not going. No way. No way. I mean, I'm not. I'm not ready for that. I, I don't want to be. Um, 
let, let me put it this way. I, I, I mean, if you, if you play in, in the Euro or let's say a World Cup, you need to present yourself as, as at the best of your ability and, and, you know, at the top of your powers. And, and I was, I was not feeling that way. Um, I, I remember I, I looked at my wife and she's, you know, she says, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> you have to go back, pre- prepare yourself as well as you can. It's a huge opportunity. It's a, it's a fantastic, um, moment for Danish football. Uh, we've never played uh, these players never, you know, being at, at the Euros. Um, we didn't qualify, rightly enough. Yugoslavia was a phenomenal side uh, in, in, in that, that season. But unfortunately for them, you know, and, and they had to uh, re- withdraw. And and I think to show them respect, obviously, we needed to go and do everything in our powers. So I remember, you know, I was, I was very hesitant because I, I felt, you know, I don't know whether I can play one game. Can I play two games? Will it be like half an hour there, half an hour of the year? But again, you know, it, it, I, I picked up the phone and I phoned Fleming Powell. You know, he was uh, with you know Dortmund, I think, back then in in, uh, in the German Bundesliga, and we always played together up front. And and you know, he was all over the moon. You know, just talking about what a chance it, it would be for this team to to show the world that we can play a wee bit of football as well. So eventually, you know, I, I, I got the the right feeling about it, you know, and, and I was really looking forward to it when, when I sat in, you know, on the plane the day, the next day and presented for training. Uh, I think it was two days after that. And you know, just, you know, meeting the guys at the hotel it was ecstatic. It was like we have all already won it. You know, it was like we have been presented with with a huge chance to um, to sell ourselves as well as we can to um, to show perhaps the Danish fans as well because we were not loved back then by the fans as much as we eventually were after the uh, the Euros because we were as as I said before, you know, we we're struggling a wee bit. You know, being compared with the '86 team, they were you know the the the, the golden uh, you know boys. You know, played fantastic football, got to the semi final. You know, they you know they were loved uh, back here, and we were like ah oh, the the, uh, the ugly duckling. You know, not 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 playing as well, perhaps not as uh, um, you know not having the same personalities as they had. So, so it, it was a fantastic opportunity for us and, and, and we took advantage of it. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson.